0: Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of March 17th, 2021. COVID lockdown, week 53. Uh, I'm Charles Hanna, writer at the website No Film School. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And we are here to talk about deepfakes imitating celebrities. We are going to be talking about how they achieved all those amazing looks on WandaVision on one camera. We're going to be talking about the new flagship camera from Nikon and why I think it explains the existence of the Sony Alpha One. We've got all that. And, you know, one of my favorite Asking No Film Schools in a long time, this week on the No Film School Podcast. All right, folks. So welcome to no film school podcast. The first story we are talking about this week is an amazing deep fake has been released of Tom Cruise. We are uh, reaching a level of deep fakery. That is it's my second favorite deep fake story of the week. Do you know my first favorite deep fake story of the week? Have you heard about the Pennsylvania cheerleader mom?
1: Yeah, I was gonna say. I think I probably do because there is one other deep fake story that kind of upends the whole deep fake. Like it's starting to really enter some weird territory, right?
0: Well, I mean, it's the kind of thing that would actually, like, you know, mostly on the No Film School podcast, we talk about like behind the scene techniques and stuff. But we also talk about content, and the Pennsylvania cheerleader story is the kind of thing that makes a good episode of a television show. So apparently, there are, you know, like we've all heard of competitive cheerleading like there are people who are trying to get on a team and not and apparently the mother of someone on a team felt like someone else on the team was her daughter's rival and so she created some deep fake apparently pornographic images of this teenager in order to get the other teenager kicked off the team because apparently that would get you kicked off a cheerleading team I don't teach high school I don't know how all of this works but uh it's probably highly illegal to make deep fake images of children like uh in sexual situations
1: it seems illegal and wrong on on a handful of levels. Oh multiple,
0: like all, all of the levels.
1: It also all it's bad on all the levels, but it also feels so much like the plot to an Alexander Payne movie.
0: Yeah, I time. mean this will end up in somebody's <laughs> plot sometime soon. I also just like did she go on Mandy.com to hire a deep fake artist? Did she post a Craig like did she Or and like look, Woman's a Criminal Belongs in jail, did she like go to Reddit and do the tutorials and learn to do deep fakes herself. I'm suspecting she hired somebody. I'm suspecting she went out there and like posted flyers at the local Kinko's being like, can you help me make deep fakes? Um, but maybe she did it herself. Maybe she's like, I'm going to learn to program an AI to do deep fakes for my nefarious ends. Um, which We've talked
1: to- about the value of knowing the skill and that, that it is a valuable skill. Hopefully you're not using it as criminal, but...
0: Well, it also goes back to my whole uh, obsession with the the beauty of in the 70s, like the reason why Star Wars is so great is because Luke had the skill to shoot the Death Star down himself from practicing on one Pratt's. It was about the hero having the skill, <laughs> whereas we've now entered this weird phase where like at the end of the new Jurassic World movie, Chris Pratt is ordering someone else to do stuff. He's like standing in the control room. He's like, OK, and then open the gates now because heroes no longer are expected to have the skill to do the thing. It's enough to be the one to make the decision to do the thing, which I think is a very weird transition in culture. And there's a bunch of modern movies where the hero is just like telling someone with this skill to do it, which is very strange. I really hope she learned how to do it herself. I hope she goes to jail. You should not be making <laughs> deepfakes fakes of under, you, I mean, frankly, porn deep in general may or may not end up illegal. And I'm probably okay if they do end up illegal. That seems like Kind of terrible human behavior, and that should probably be illegal, but like double illegal for teenagers. But that's not the deepfake story we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about the Tom Cruise deepfake story, and this one's slightly more interesting for filmmakers. You know, most of the time when we see one of those, what if Rambo had starred Nick Cage deepfakes? There's there's a little bit of like an uncanny, like this, this is this is really close to working but it's not quite, you know, there's an uncanny valley element of it where it's like, it doesn't quite work. It's like, have you, have you gotten to know anyone with a mask? Like, and like you met them with the mask and you always knew them with the mask and then you see them maskless. It's happened to me a couple times now where I'm like, that's not what I was picturing. And it's like, <laughs> it's a weird feeling of like discomfort with like, I've built a face for you in my head and now I'm seeing your face and it's different. And it's like, it's just unnerving, which is, a, it's unnerving a in exactly the way the video uh, deep fakes are unnerving. This Tom Cruise actually is not unnerving. Now,
1: no, it's it's basically him and the main reason is because the tech is getting better, but they also designed they didn't try to slap his face somewhere that wasn't built for his face to go in a deep fake. They shot a video with a very skilled impersonator for the purposes of the deep fake and in doing that created something that feels like pretty darn natural. Like there's very little there when you're watching it. And the whole thing, unlike uh, for the deep fake aficionados out there, if you haven't Googled and watched Sassy Justice, which is from the South Park guys, and you can find it on YouTube, and it's pretty funny in my opinion, but it's just deep fakery in their spirit of their in the spirit of their humor and used to be ridiculous. This Tom Cruise thing is not at all used for comedy. It's entirely like look what we can do. We can have him hold a coin in front of his face. We can have him put a hat on and sunglasses on and off. We can do we can have him walk away. We can have so they're just trying to have him trip and fall all just to demonstrate like the flawlessness of we can absolutely have Tom Cruise do anything that this impersonator does that we want.
0: And there's so much here. I mean, first off, professional Tom Cruise impersonators exist, like did not realize. But according to the New York Times article I read about this, they refer to him as a professional Tom Cruise impersonator. I actually think he does more than that. Weirdly, I seem to remember like five years ago seeing a music video he did mashing up the talking heads with American Psycho. So I think he's more just a visual performer artsy guy who the New York Times reduced to being a Tom Cruise impersonator um, because mainstream media often flattens characters to to one of the jobs they do. But we know in late stage capitalism, we all have a billion different jobs and you shouldn't reduce us to a single one New York Times. That was a bit of a rant, but I'm okay with it. <laughs> For content creators, it is very much in an interesting place. I've been saying, I remember like two years ago with George and NAB, I was like, you know, this fall, my project's going to be learning deep fakes. I still haven't done it because then I had a kid and you don't have projects to yourself anymore. You know, my project now is like making snacks, which is great. I love my daughter.
1: We but. yeah, we've been saying we have been on this podcast saying that learning how to deep fake seems like one of the smartest things you can do. Um if you're trying to develop skills that are going to be easy to monetize in this field or in a lot of fields in the near future, having a deep fake machine cuz obviously you need to dedicate some resources to it, but there is so much to this because like Tom Cruise, why Tom Cruise? Well, because I mean, this guy's a really skilled Tom Cruise impersonator, but Tom Cruise is a, a, one of the most famous brands as far as a star that exists. He's an IP unto himself. Essentially. He also is in a lot of movies where you need to do a lot of stunts. And while Tom loves doing his stunts or so we're told, how cool is it to think that and i'm sorry this isn't meant to be like a, oh it would be great if stunt people didn't matter because they do because the whole idea here is you can put the face on a different body doing the action and the idea of a double almost like of a double that's obviously a double it almost completely vanishes but not only that let's talk about like that star uh, mandalorian star wars episode where luke skywalker was not a deep fake really, but like kind of a deep fake. I don't really know exactly what they did to get young Luke's Luke's old face on the body of the double. Um, If you look up the actor who played the body of Luke Skywalker in The Mandalorian, he looks a little bit like Luke, but not really. He also kind of looks like what the finished Luke looked like, which looked a little bit like a younger Mark Hamill, but not exactly like him. Um, And I did wonder watching it, I thought, I wonder why they didn't just do a deep fake like he didn't it it probably would have been better and maybe there are reasons maybe there are ethical reasons um, just because they were like we want to create a new thing using a performer. I'm not sure what the rules are going to be on deepfakes. fakes is what I'm saying like what's to stop us from getting just like off the Tom Cruise thing for a second a whole new movie about Luke Skywalker when he's Return of the Jedi aged. I'm taking it all to Star Wars, of course, because that's where my mind goes. But <laughs> what's to stop us from getting that movie with a deep fake Luke doing all kinds of stuff? I don't know. Like, what's to stop the estate of think of a famous actor who who left us back in their prime uh on in all kinds of movies? Why not? Um, that's the question that comes up. And I think that's the that's the troubling, but also maybe exciting thing. There are no limits.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the f- the flop that was Han-, Han Solo, which I was surprised by because Han Solo was actually not as bad as everyone seemed to say it was. But the fact that Han Solo flopped is giving us like a five-year protection from a young um, Luke Skywalker movie. Like, I still think that there's the potential of like a Luke Skywalker in kindergarten kid show at some point, but I think...
1: They would, instead of doing that, where they were like, let's cast a new actor, they could just scrap that idea. And I'm not saying they could do it um, officially, because again, there's a lot of rules involved with likenesses and such. Um, I'm just saying technically or or, or I am wondering
0: when there will be a online torrentable version of Han Solo with, Han, with Harrison Ford recast for Ansel Elgert. Who I actually really like, but I think that internet fans didn't like. Which I, you know, it's impossible to make the internet happy. The internet is inherently outraged by definition. But I like someone on the internet is going to put Harrison Ford in the Han Solo movie, and it'll be interesting. The thing for me that I find fascinating. They did. With I, this, I, they did, oh, and like, it's
1: not. It's not a good quality. Like it's a low quality deepfake. It's not up to yeah. snuff. But but, but they're going to do better. Yes, exactly. Yes,
0: we are absolutely getting there. And we're sort of crossing this, the uncanny valley together. I mean, honestly, what's interesting about this for me is I think about this. So, you know, there's a billion reasons why we shoot long hours in film, but the reason that everybody keeps going back to is like, well, you're always negotiating for the biggest stars based on their availability. And then, you know, on big movie shoots, you're frequently shooting certain action scenes with stunt doubles. And so that changes your schedule. And this really does open up the possibility of like, okay, I can only afford Alec Baldwin for these four scenes in this movie. But maybe I need nine scenes with Alec Baldwin and these five where the importance does, the performance doesn't have to be quite as good or it's wide shots. I can deep fake Alec because I get a stand in that's good enough and can do a great Alec Baldwin impression because who doesn't have a good Alec Baldwin impression? In that is such,
1: such a good point about this, that beyond the question of replacing people, bringing them back from the dead, making them young again, any of that. How much does this increase the ability to get more content in one performance when you are trying to make a movie that has a certain amount of a star who's selling your movie? It could change the nature of indie film. We all know that there are there's a strategy in the indie world where you'll try to get a name or a talent and you'll maybe get a day or two because that's all they can give you. But that becomes something you have to stretch out in your film. It's a performance that helps you get your film seen it's a name that helps you but what if you get enough of their like they sign off on the use of the likeness across the movie so you can deep fake them into more of it then suddenly you're getting more of them maybe they don't need more money because they're doing the film uh you know at a rate that they agree at the point being like it could change the business it could change the nature of the business from the perspective of like maybe Alec Baldwin could have I don't know why maybe Robert Downey Jr. could have like 15 movies come out in a given year, you know, because how could he possibly make that many? Well, he can't, but he can provide his voice and his likeness and he can show up a few days for photography and then boom. He's all over the place, right? Yeah.
0: I mean, I think that there's, you know, the the thing that usually comes up is the idea of like, well, people are going to do this to actors without their consent. And I think the smart, savvy actors, it's interesting you bring up Robert Downey Jr. Like he invests in a lot of tech stuff and he's very savvy. I think there will be actors who view this as a way, like I I can imagine an actor reading a script and being like, okay, that needs to be me. And that can be my stand in. And that can be, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like as part of their breakdown process, I think that there's, Possibilities there.
1: Oh, they can absolutely take full advantage because think about it this way an actor who appeared like on a guest episode or two of Seinfeld is still making money from like one little appearance. So, if you're a talent at the level of really any talent, if you can get yourself deep faked into something where you may be not able to show up for, for the full amount of shooting because you're on the set for, you know, Avengers final game four but you want to be able to do a guest spot on Young Sheldon, the Big Bang Theory spinoff or whatever, then you can have your deep fake in it and you can collect that paycheck forever. In addition to being in the big movie, that's a huge opportunity for the performer. So as opposed to being taken advantage of, they can kind of hold hostage. Uh, I mean, that hold hostage, they can just earn far more. And plus, it's better for the content because having more availability of Robert Downey Jr. means more things launch because of his presence.
0: I mean, I, I can only imagine that there are people busily amending contact contracts at creative artists agency right now to include the sort of boundaries around how this is going to work on. Cause you know, it's no accident that also the one that got all the attention was a Tom Cruise one, right? Like, we have this relationship yes. with celebrity. We are engaged with celebrity and it is a, yeah. So I think indie filmmakers should absolutely take note. I mean, if there's a theme of the last two years.
1: Learn deep fakes.
0: Yeah. Learn deep fakes. I,
1: I mean, yeah. If there's a theme. It's learn deep fakes. I was just going to say again, it's like we all love it because as audiences, we want to know who's cast and what we see things based on who's cast and what and stars mean a lot. And is IP becomes important, having more Wolverines starring Hugh Jackman because he's getting older and maybe can't pull off the young Wolverine anymore. But like that's exactly why this is a, you know, a win for, I'm sure like you say, CAA is amending contracts. I bet Disney and whoever else, Sony, like whoever has important IP, um, and actors' faces associated with it, the alternative to doing like a recast and a reboot is, because that's certainly one route, like Batman, for example. The idea is like, how many Batman can we have? Like 100? And does that sort of make it so Batman is is more important than any single performer playing him? But there's really one Iron Man, um, and, and having his likeness rights could be huge going forward.
0: I mean, I think Ozzy Osbourne also has some rights to say he's Iron Man. <laughs> Um,
1: He certainly did say he was Iron Man
0: Repeatedly, way before (laughs) Robbie Donner Jr. did, so he called Dibs, I think (laughs) I think we're going to give it to Ozzy On Dibs All right, moving on to the other story We wanted to talk about this week, which is Sort of a deep dive that we covered On Film School, and I think it came from Film School Rejects, and it's been covered A few other places on WandaVision Which is, uh, you know, a very popular, very Meme-heavy show Uh, from the Marvel extended universe. And, you know, it went through a variety of aesthetics and a lot of people were very surprised to discover that all of those aesthetics were created on a single camera body. There is this idea in filmmakers that the only way to make an image look like anything else is to change camera bodies. And like, it can be super fun. And I've totally worked on music videos where we shot on early eighties VHS cameras or early eighties, three quarter inch videotape cameras and old Ikigamis, because it did look cool and it bottled that look in a certain way. So like, I'm not saying that's not fun. I am saying that when you're working on a high-end TV show and you have a very tight schedule, the unpredictability of those, you know, buying a Sony Pixel Vision camera or a UMIC Nadia underwater Super 8 camera and depending upon them to work on a big production doesn't always make sense. And there are a lot of things we can do to craft the image. And one of the things they did on WandaVision is they decided that despite having vintage sitcom looks from various different eras and various different aesthetics. They were like, we're just going to shoot it all on the Alexa LF. And I thought that it's an important thing to remember that like knowing it's going to work is part of being able to deliver at that level. And so they picked a camera they knew would deliver, but then they went through, you have the article in front of you. How many different types of lenses?
1: 47 different lenses. Several of which were customized.
0: Yeah, you cannot, like, lenses affect your image so much. So, so, so much. Lenses have so much personality. There is no perfect lens. There is no default lens that's perfect for everything. Although, honestly, the Aries Signature Primes come really close. But that's neither here nor there. And so, lensing was one of the big things they went through. Because, you know, the nice thing about a lens is it's not electronic. Except for slash eye or or the... uh, Panavision um, DXL lenses. So you're reasonably confident that if you tested it well in production, it's going to work. Like when you're working with one of those like vintage Ikegami cameras, you can test all you want and then you show up on the day and it might just not be in a mood to work that day when you're dealing with vintage electronics. So if they tried to recreate those vintage sitcom looks with like vintage sitcom cameras, that is such a roll of the dice. Whereas vintage glass that gives you some of the appearance of it, if it works on the test day, it'll work on the day, usually. It's very rare your lens is just not in the mood to be a lens on the day you arrive. I suppose it could happen, but it's way less likely. And so they went for glass, which I think it's like a really smart lesson for filmmakers to remember.
1: I'm with you. You know, I grew up or as a filmmaker in a time before video was digital medium was really dominant yet. And so there was a lot of like, can you what can you do with video? Um, and video has its own look. And and I had projects where I was like, we'll use the period, we'll get an old 16 millimeter camera for some of it, and then we'll switch to video for this stuff, and then we'll switch to this. And I had a couple of projects where I was really testing the idea of creating the period largely through the medium. Because I've always felt the medium is what communicates our idea of the '80s, the '70s, the '60s, whatever. It's and it's you know the genius of Mank in some ways. And I want to just plug our other uh, our interviews with the Mank uh, art department that I did on this podcast because they talked about how. The whole approach was shoot it as though it was made at the time. And what does that mean, especially because they're shooting on a digital medium? But what's so cool about what cinematographer Jess Hall did on Wandavision, if you read deeply on the subject on our story and elsewhere on the internet, is deciding, okay, I can do this with lenses and color science and lighting, but it's best if I stick with the camera, the Alexi the Area Alexa LF, because I want that best possible total package, right? Like in 4K. And then I can do whatever I want within that space. Um, So it's kind of like creating boundaries, I feel like, within your sandbox. Um, Like putting up some walls. Because there's so much you could do, but it kept it simple. And the other crazy thing is, for some of it, they shot in front of a live audience to create even more of the feel of it's a sitcom from the era. So they had to do a lot of this this adapting in that setting which added another layer of complication for the for the crew they mention things like ranging bull where they go between like super 8 and 35 changing aspect ratio to i mean the fights i believe are in a different format to convey this is how you would have seen it if you were watching it on tv at the time all of this stuff is just such Filmmaker fodder. I don't know what else to call it. It's so fun when people use the familiar tools and uh, textures to tell the story, create the meaning that we understand. And that is exactly what WandaVision did. And I think why it breaks through for, for a filmmaker audience as something special, something a little different than just another Marvel product.
0: Yeah. And Raging Bull, of course, famously, they. this is in the American Cinematographer article, they... Michael Chapman the DP didn't think he could operate badly enough to make something look like a home movie so they gave the Super 8 camera to the teamsters the the folks who the truck drivers on set and had them operate the home movie so it would look more like a home movie which is like it's like a little charmingly condescending it's like we can't do this badly give it to the teamsters and they're like i'm sure the teamsters also know how to shoot a home movie properly um but it's also <laughs> just like this idea that it's like well we can't even fake how bad it should be So we're going to have someone else who doesn't have the skills we have do it, which is like, you know, one of those things that's always stuck out to me from the American cinematographer article about raging bull, a beautiful shot movie by Michael Chapman, who just passed away. Rest in peace.
1: Yeah. I, I, I like, I also want to highlight something else. I've heard a lot of cinematographers talk about how their new version of choosing a stock, what used to be choosing a film stock. They now consider how they pair a lens with a sensor. So, you may have the sensor in the airy, you may have the sensor in a red. The lens choice paired with sensors where they get their texture and how they and what they test. And I've heard that over and over again from all kinds of DPs. This is the most obvious example of that idea being pushed because the sensor they they settled on the sensor, but they were like, let's just take all these different lenses, you know, and customize a few of them and see what we can do there to make, you know, I know I'm I know you know all of this, Charles, but I've heard, again, people say lenses used to be designed to do as little as possible, to keep it as clean coming from the world, delivering it to the celluloid, because the celluloid was where something was going to happen, right? How you exposed it, et cetera, what happened inside the camera body. But now the lens is the place where you make your artistic choices. And that's fascinating because the cleanness of what you're recording on the sensor is like, it can't be more perfect in a sense, right? So that lens has to do something to alter and, um, what's the word we're looking for? Elaborate on
0: themes visually. We're also in this weird era where we're still talking about lenses that were designed for different technologies. So like, you know, this has been talked about a lot with digital is that like, you know, the Zeiss lenses are so crisp and sharp and it's too much for me on digital. And I need to shoot the cooks on digital. And it's like, while that's fair, it unfairly like stigmatizes the Zeiss. like the Zeiss were that sharp because film itself is kind of soft. So Zeiss were sharp because, you know, especially like the ultra primes and the master primes, they were assuming you were shooting 35 millimeter film and they were adding a little sharpness to balance for the softness of the film stock, whereas today they're assuming that the digital sensor is going to be sharp. So, like if you look at the new Supreme Primes, the sort of first digital-focused PL mount lenses from Zeiss, because they did before that they did the Digi Primes in B4 mount. You really see a set of lenses that are like, you know, they still look Zeissy, but they don't look like that artificially sharpness you get out of Masters because they're paired properly with the sensor they were designed to go to. So what's interesting about shooting in digital is you see there's this idea that we see the purest form of a lens when you're looking at it in like some sort of like Arri Alexa or like 8K red. And it's like, well, yeah, but the lens was designed for one thing and we're using it to do something else. So like, you know, just because you might not like the way a master prime looks on one sensor doesn't mean you're not going to like it on another sensor and doesn't mean you wouldn't like it on film. Yeah. It goes back to that thing you're saying. It's the combination of lens and sensor and then processing it's those things altogether that really get us to a place where we're like, oh, okay, here is what comes together to create an image.
1: Yeah, it's just a different method using the same tools and different combinations. And it's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, it's just it's also funny that it flipped where, like you're saying, it used to be that a lens was supposed to try and sharpen in some examples, and now a lens is for lack of a better phrase, fuck it up a little bit so it has (laughs) character, right?
0: Step on it, yeah. Alrighty, the next thing we were talking about is tech news this week. And tech news is Nikon has just dropped their new Z9. Now, a lot of you are wondering, Nikon, you don't talk about Nikon much. Nikon is the other big camera manufacturer, right? It's Nikon and Canon and Sony are like the three big competitors in the still camera market. And weirdly, Nikon has had the hardest time getting traction with filmmakers. There's a lot of reasons for this. Uh, The fact that they don't have like a film specific line, whereas Canon has the C line and 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 even back in the film days, they had like the scoopic and stuff. And the fact that Sony has always had like a strong video camera line helps brand knowledge, right? Like it's much easier for you to consider a Sony A7S3 when you're just coming off a job where you shot Sony Venice and so you're familiar with their menus and their naming and stuff. Whereas like, you know, I haven't come off a job where I shot Nikon on like the big high-end job. So I've never really thought about Nikon on the low end. They have a little bit of a footprint but not a lot and as they compete for that footprint they tend to try and out compete on specs so when canon and nikon came out with the full frame mirrorless cameras you know the nikon Z6 and Z7 a couple of years ago and and the initial canon the nikon were better on specs and they supported external raw over hdmi first as far as i can remember they were the first hdmi external raw support. I could be wrong, but I remember talking to the Jeremy, the CEO of Atomos and I was like, when are we going to have it over HDMI? Cause you can only do it SDI at that point. And he was like, we're ready. We're talking to the camera manufacturers. We're waiting. And Nikon were the first people to do it because they want the motion picture market. Cause we buy cameras and we buy cameras a lot. Um, and they haven't quite dented it for a lot of reasons. They're also struggling a bit. They're closing a couple factories. They're shrinking. It's starting to feel like a battle of Canon versus Sony and they're trying to keep up and stand out. So they just dropped a sort of quote-unquote flagship-y kind of camera, the Z9, which shoots 8K video, and that is a big deal. Now, it's at least partially a big deal because a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Sony's new Alpha 1, and full disclosure, I'm reviewing it right now. I will have a review up soon. It's kind of fun, the Alpha 1, but the Alpha 1 is weird because it's like an 8K camera for $6,500 that came out really soon after the a7s3 their 4k camera like a couple of months later like close enough that it you know because corporations usually have these like big schedules for like we'll release this then and then this later and you know it's all coordinated and the alpha one felt fast it felt like really you guys just came out with the a7s3 and it's big marquee spec for filmmakers of the A K video internal and now we have the Nikon. And and I think the Nikon Z9 tells us what happened with Sony. Sony saw that the Z9 was coming out and wanted to make sure the Alpha 1 was out first because they're Sony and they do stuff first, right? They were like four years ahead of everybody else on full-frame mirrorless. I think they got enough. I mean, frankly, Nikon buys Sony sensors. The word on the street is it's the same sensor in the Nikon Z9 and the Alpha 1. So either originally Nikon was going to get to do it first and then something about the contact tract changed. And and Sony was like, oh, okay, we no longer have to honor that. We're going to drop our camera to be ahead of you. That's possible. Or Nikon changed their delivery date. And so Sony had to change to a come. There's something there that made Yeah, it.
1: that's weird. So Nikon, buy, Nikon probably is using the Sony sensor. And so Sony was obviously fine with that. But that... Spurred them to decide, well, we're just gonna release that sensor in our own camera.
0: At the at the high <laughs> end in motion pictures, there's only a few <laughs> sensor fabs. So like Aerie obviously makes their own sensor, which is yeah. one of the reasons why the Alexa is so good, but it's also one of the reasons why the Alexa LF is just two of their sensors put together on a chip. Because, you know, as as the joke is is they're still paying off the fab they're still paying off the construction of the device that fabricates sensors i don't know that that's true that alexa has been successful enough they probably paid it off but like they're still continuing to get building a fabrication system is really expensive they're still continuing to use it for all it's worth but other than airy building their own canon builds their own sony builds their own but like nikon sensors are built by canon Uh, Hasselblad's sensor is often built by Canon, even Fuji's sensor with its weird arrays. Fuji will, I believe the medium format Fuji sensors are made by Sony. I have to check Hmm. that. I I don't remember on the medium format as well as I used to, but I think that's a Sony sensor. So, you know, there's only a few. Yeah. A lot of what makes a camera a camera is the image processing in the body. The sensor there, there's not as many manufacturers as we might dream there would be.
1: Hmm. I mean, we're not going to see this camera for a little while. Um, it says end of 2021. I know. So we won't really know how different. But like, what is what is Nikon bringing to the table that's going to, what are they, what's going to make this
0: unique? I mean, here's the thing. What filmmakers knew about Nikon before was long lenses. I, You know, I, there were so many times last year. I mean, not last year, last decade, last century, where like I would, you know, I'd be at Claremont camera and we'd be like, all right, well, show me what my options are on like beautiful telephoto lenses adapted for motion picture use. And there'd be like the Claremont 1000 th- millimeter. But if I wanted like a 300 millimeter, which opened to something, you know, there'd be a good amount of time it would be a Nikkor, which is, you know, one of the Nikon lens brands. And you you run into, you know, when I did a bunch of vintage cinema lens tests, like the vintage Nikons were always among my favorites. Like I would shoot those over the Canon uh, our, uh, not our line, the Canon, um, L series any day, like, you know, really nice, beautiful old lenses. So that was the, the sort of cachet the brand had. And I think if they had earlier moved to, we're going to make sort of hybrid cine slash still lenses where you could do autofocus or you could do manual focus or whatever, sort of what Sony and Panasonic have been doing really well in the last two or three years. If Nikon had hit that hard in the beginning, I think they might've made a f- footprint with us, you know, cause for so long Canon was like, yeah, we're going to make beautiful lenses, but they're all going to be really targeted at still. And it's going to be annoying to try and pull focus in- for a motion shot. Nikon could have stepped on it at this point. I, I think Nikon's going to have a hard time getting in, especially cause, you know, aside from the Canon versus Sony battle, we now have black magic doing their amazing raw stuff. We now have, you know, at the high end, we have red and airy that aren't even in the Sony versus, you know, there's so much competition in motion. Right. That I think, yes, I think it's going to be hard. And frankly, it's a busy field, it's a, but it's
1: an exciting thing that there's so many options, and we can talk about as they come out. Like, what makes this night? What's going to be different about this one, or what does it offer that maybe some of the others don't?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be, yeah, it's going to be tricky to see sort of how they try and find a footing in this world. I think they're hoping their 8K is going to do it, except Sony already has 8K. So they're not really trying to poach off Sony. They're trying to poach off Canon, I think. And 8K is interesting. I mean, you get some more reframing out of it. You do get some extra resolution down there in it. But especially if it turns out it is just the same sensor as the Sony, I think it's going to be a bit a bit of a a bit of a wolf. Well, we'll see. Hmm. And then our last story this week is a great Ask No Film School. Do you want to read it?
1: Yes. So this is the question we got from I, I, I don't know if it's pronounced Sunny or Sony, probably Sonny. Uh, Sunny wants to self-fund the first feature film, saved up some money, and is excited to actually create something. Rather than waiting on people to finance it and be slapped with the limitations of that, our filmmaker here has the resources and the team to actually make it happen, is finishing their script, and they're excited to learn from the experience. But they do want to take the film out and try to sell or distribute it. So if there's any general advice for this, what would it be? Best Sonny Rossi. Sorry if I mispronounced the name. Charles, do you want to... It's a big question. Um, Do you want to jump in? I
0: have a billion answers. So I'm I'm just going to ramble. And George, you're going to stop me and jump in with your answers too. But I, I have so many things to say. First off, Sonny, I have to give the caveat of... The, the advice in the film industry in general is do not finance your own project. You hear that all the time. And from a purely financial perspective, I agree. It is not a good investment. If you are looking for an investment, if you are looking for like, where can I put my money that it will safely grow so that I can be in one of those commercials where I'm old and I'm fixing up a vintage Ford and we, my what partner and I have outdoor <laughs> bathtubs, like that. that is not a movie right? You should put your, like, I don't know, what do they say? A mutual fund, an index fund, right? Like you go to an index fund or if you're like one of the, I have a student who's like, man, I'm learning all this stuff about Bitcoin on YouTube and I've made all this money this year. And I'm like, maybe go do that. Although Bitcoin crashed really hard a couple of years ago and maybe it will again. I don't follow Bitcoin closely enough to know. However, I also think that this don't invest in your own movie thing is a little bit of bullshit. And I have a lot of theories as to why it comes up so much. You hear it so often. And I think part of the reason why is like investing in your own movie is a threat to the established people who decide what movies get made and what don't, right? Like Tarsem Singh, who made The Cell, which I like, but also made The Fall, which I love. Like, I like The Cell. The Fall, I love, is, um, you know, couldn't get a movie made. So he's like, fuck it. I'm a big commercial director. I'll pay for it myself. Now, rumor is that the original budget was supposed to be 4 million and he spent 20 million. I don't have either 4 or 20 million, but you know, one of the hard things about self-financing a movie is it's hard to keep your budget under control, but you end up with the fall, which is a beautiful touching movie and was a huge hit and relaunched his feature directing career. And he's gone on to direct some other features and, and, you know, so it's a, it is a decision you can make. And in fact, coming up in a either, I don't know if this interview is played yet, but I just interviewed filmmaker Mark Toya who self-financed a feature film to $1.5 million and ended up like, you know, because he was like, I don't, I didn't want to spend time going around pitching it. I just wanted to make the decision myself to make it. He was a commercial director. He'd been able to make that much directing commercials, self-financed it, and it's launched a directing career for him. And he has all these opportunities now. I mean, a narrative directing career, not commercials. He was, he's been doing commercials for 20 years. So like, I do think the reason that advice gets repeated so often is because people are like, well, you know, it is about, you know, like I'm, I'm a big fan of like self-publishing and comic books and like zine culture and like just giving yourself permission to go out and do interesting shit and do whatever you want. And like, if it's, you've saved up $50,000 somehow and you want to go make a movie with that $50,000, like as long as you know that you're probably just going to spend that money and not get it back. As long as you know that like statistically, this isn't an investment. This is a artistic creation that you're making because it has to be made then sure go for it if you've not made anything like that size before I actually had this call with someone I know I would recommend you do three or four shorts first just to make sure you're ready because nothing is worse than like okay I've saved up $50,000 and I put it all on a feature film and it turns out I'm not as good as I thought I was and there's like basic one-on-one <laughs> things I wish I had learned and like I would hate for that to derail your career. Like I know a lot of people that like did one feature or one short, and it wasn't what they wanted to be, and they were like, "Fuck it, I'm going to go sell real estate." And like, what if you made like four shorts first, and by the fourth you'd started to find your voice and figure out what you wanted to say, and and figure out what it is. And like people, you know, always talk about like, well, P.T. Anderson and his first feature is great, but P.T. Anderson also made like two big shorts before his first feature, right? Um, Boogie Nights and Hard Eight both had short versions before he made Hard Eight, the feature, which is a great movie many people have great first features. Many of those people have great first features made a couple of things ahead of time that helped them figure out who they are, who they were and what they wanted to say and helped them know even how to make a movie. And like, I've spent a long time as a DP. I worked on a lot of projects with first-time directors and you could tell the first-time directors who were like, oh, well, I did a couple shorts or I did this one commercial and like, I at least feel comfortable on set. And I at least feel comfortable on like, you know, that I know what like how this is all going to work. And I understand like the trade-offs and decisions I'm making. So I would do some of that with whatever. I would take like whatever you've saved, I would spend 5% 5 of it making a couple of short films on that budget to make sure you're like, I am capable of delivering on a tight budget the things I want. In terms of distribution, you know, as we were talking earlier, like names help. Names help, names help, names help, names help. Like it is not uncommon for an indie feature budget to be half cast because if you can get good, you know, I've definitely worked on movies. Uh, I remember like the first feature I shot, the budget was like $200,000 and I never got to see the budget because it's a tiny little budget movie. But like, I guarantee you looking back that the lead actor in that got 60 to $80,000 to be in it because he had a name and that name was going to help with distribution and the producer and director knew that they could figure out how to do the rest for a hundred. I guarantee like there is no way that that lead actor was out at SAG scale because they needed a lead actor to get distribution and the actor knew it. And the actor's agent knew it. And that's how that works. So a larger percent of your budget should go to helping you get good actors who can do the part and who can help you with distribution. And then beyond that, distribution's really hard. And if you don't get get any good festivals, it gets harder. But Amazon Prime will let you just self-distribute. And I know a lot of good self-distribution consultants now. And it becomes all a a sort of marketing game to drive traffic to your platform. And I would really seriously consider something like that. These are all my thoughts.
1: I've done it before. Not at the $4 million scale, sadly. (laughs) Or maybe maybe that's a good thing, actually, because that's a lot of money to lose on a movie or on anything. I think that the adage is cut both ways. I do think there is wisdom to the, a little pushback. I do think there's some wisdom to the don't self finance, just because even though I agree with you on principle, Charles, that that's a method of control, the danger of self finance to me is not just the loss of money. Assume you're going to lose it. Don't go, like you said, you're not going to, assume you lose whatever you spent on the movie. Assume you're buying or paying for instead of losing a calling card, uh, an entry point, an opportunity to grow or create a career, or however you want to look at it, just like you might spend on um, going to film school. Maybe a lot of people who spend the money on film school think, man, I could have just made a really kick-ass feature. Maybe, maybe. But the point is, the process of getting approval for someone else's money is kind of a vetting process for the potential of the idea. Now that gets complicated philosophically because it can be just a vetting process for if it can make money. And if making money isn't your goal, well, then what is it a vetting process for? We see a lot of horrible movies that get made every day and greenlit all the way through and nobody would be excited to make them or make them as a passion project. (laughs) They're just trying to make money and then they even fail at that. So what's my point? I think my point is You need to find some way to hold your material accountable. And if it's not through obtaining financing, maybe it's through yourself. Maybe you have the ability to do that. Maybe you need collaborators who you trust. I've spoken to some filmmakers on this podcast before and in general who will say, my producing partner kept me honest or my team told me if it wasn't ready or if it wasn't good enough or what it needed or maybe you had a mentor on the script maybe you did something like a sundance lab maybe you did screenplay contests and you won one so you know your script is good my advice is to make sure you vet this material outside of yourself because i've been the young filmmaker who tried to self-finance and and with very little money like i, I was always on the like shoestring side of things and and that's the one thing I was always really good at. What I wasn't good at was vetting the material because I was so confident that, well, I don't really care if they don't think it's good. I think it's good and I'm who matters, right? So sometimes that can paint you into a corner. I I feel like a good artist or filmmaker is stubborn and is confident, but I also think you need to be aware that vetting the material helps determine whether or not people are going to want to watch it at all. So you have to be good at taking notes and you have to be willing to adjust your material. I also totally agree, practice a lot and get a lot of exposure. The more I've been to festivals, the more I've spoken to filmmakers, the more I've just done this podcast, the more I've learned from other people about what audiences want, what talent looks for in a script, what distributors like, what a producer might like not to mention um where to take something when it's done there's just so much to know that what i what i fear in your question sonny is just that you are in a bubble of i'm i've got the material i'm ready to do this and i have the team ready to do it and i and i'm going to do it and i think you need to as much as you can extend out to people who have never heard your script before or heard of your idea, pitch them the one line, see if they're interested. And if they're not, be willing to go back and rework it. Because if you do want to get distribution, because it does sound like that's your end goal, you're going to have to consider what it takes to make a piece of material that people are excited about watching or reading or being in or working on. So all those things should factor in. I'm sure you're more than capable of making it. The question is, is it something that people are going to be excited about? Because when you get to the point of even self-distribution, uh, there's a lot out there. So even when you get it, and I've been on this part of the path too, once you have something in distribution, why are people going to watch your thing as opposed to another thing? Is it someone in it? Is it something about the title? Is it something about the poster? Is it something about the, the concept? Is it, um, who knows? But you need to think about all those things if you really want it to break through. So without the financing arm that comes in and brings that to the table, because someone putting money in something, they are going to be the voice that that confirms that it has that potential. You're going to have to find that somewhere, either in yourself or in a collaborator in the world that that vets this material. That would be my key piece of advice, because... If you can do that, well, then, yeah, definitely don't listen to the people who say don't invest your own money in your movie. But the danger, again, of investing in your own movie is that you lose that vetting process. Yeah. That's, that, that's all I got. it. <laughs> but I definitely think you should do it because, as you said, you will learn by doing it. So if it's an amount of money, even if, you, even if the vetting process doesn't go great, you could still go out there, do it, and learn so much that it would be valuable on that level.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, that's killer. So you can look at my self-funded web series on Amazon Prime, Salty Pirate, and my not self-funded, traditionally, or not traditionally funded, but like not self-funded feature film, Angel Sports, on Amazon Prime. Uh, You can hear my interview with Mark Toya, which is somewhere in the No Film School podcast feed, who self-financed a feature, Um, and all of that and more. NoFilmSchool.com. You can check me out at CharlesHane.com. George.
1: Yeah, and I'm George Edelman, editor in chief at No Film School. You can find everything we spoke about here today and more at nofilmschool.com. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook. Please like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Share it. Tell your friends about it. Leave a comment. Tell everyone how awesome it is, or not. Be honest. We like that. Uh, and yeah, um, Charles did a podcast that will be up. Is probably up already. Uh, And if it isn't, it'll be up soon. Um, So definitely check that out along with all of our other podcasts and go to nofilmschool.com and check out our gear guides if you're looking to buy gear to make that feature. We have all the advice you need. Thanks so much.